So I remember as a young person, phone calls coming in in the middle of the night and my mom and my mom and my father answering. And I can, I just remember my mother crying, crying because she'd heard the voice of her mother or her brother mm. for the first time in years mm. hearing about what's going on, the turmoil that's happening within the country, the medicines that they may need. Mm. But the voice of my mother's family just broke her. It almost, I would probably, the way in which she cried made me feel like it would be better if she hadn't heard from them at all. Even though they were okay, they were in a place that just, that just consumed them because they were in a civil war and they couldn't control the outcome of it at all. And so there's this thing that happens too where my parents, I feel this, we suffer from what's known as survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. How did we get out? Why didn't they get out? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Bhaktash Ahadi. He is a speaker and a writer, and he is the creative mind behind the podcast, Stories of Transformation. Thank you for being here, Bhaktash. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so glad you were able to make the time. And your story intrigued me when I heard it. Um, I do love the work you're doing in your podcast and the stories you're pursuing. And today, I'm most interested in your story, um, because you were not born in the U.S. And so what I was curious was... If you could just give me a little background about how you came to this country and how old you were. Great, yeah. Um, so uh, I was born in Afghanistan in 1981. Mm-hmm. And in 1983, um, 1983, 1984, my father was given an ultimatum to either support the, uh, the Soviet-backed Afghan government or else his life would be in danger. And so that night he essentially came home and told mom, pack up your bags, pack our bags, we're leaving. And so at that time I was um, three years old. And my youngest, my middle brother, he was just a, just a touch over a year old. And so we essentially went from our home in Kabul. My dad had ties with the Mujahideen. And so we fled and took us seven, seven days and six nights to go through the Hindu Kush mountain range between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Miraculously made it across the border, got shot at by Soviet gunships a couple times. Um, spent two years in makeshift homes in Pakistan. And eventually our family was sponsored to come to Carlisle, Pennsylvania in 1986. And we landed and um, Carlisle became our home for the next, um, actually it's where my parents live now. So Carlisle's where I was raised, a small little town in Pennsylvania. It always gets um, the accolade of being one of the top 25 most livable towns in America. Wow. Which is uh, <laughs> which is a fascinating like do you agree do you agree with that hey, uh, Ronit, what's interesting about um home so carlisle is just two hours north of washington dc where you and i are sitting mm-hmm. and uh what's wonderful about home is not only do my parents live there but uh i go home i tell people i go home to remember and i go home to remember because um carlisle was such a wonderful place to have been raised in hmm. it's the kind of place where people leave their doors open where everybody knows their neighbor, where everybody knows who their parents, who the parents of their children are that go to school with them. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a wonderful little town. How is the reception as far as you remember or what you were told to your family? How, what was that like for you guys? That's a great question. So uh, I have to start by saying that uh, I'd, I'd start this, this part of the conversation by telling a joke about my parents. Okay. And so what's interesting about the world is that uh, oftentimes what we know about the world is what we see on television about the world. And so in the context of the 1980s, uh, United States was really great about exporting action films and you know films about New York and Los Angeles to the rest of the world. And as you and I know, and as all your uh, listeners know the United States is a vast place that has a lot of diversity. So Omaha is not the same as New York and New York's not the same as Miami and Miami's not the <laughs> same as Santa Fe. My parents first landed in the United States. We landed in Harrisburg international airport and it's only international because they have flights going to Toronto. <laughs> so my parents landed 
And Carlisle, Pennsylvania is on the cusp of Lancaster County. And so for your audience members that don't know, Lancaster County is where the Amish live. So my dad is from Kandahar, which is known to now be the home to the Taliban. And so my father, the Kandahar is a relatively conservative place. People dress in black and have long beards in Kandahar. <laughs> so my dad leaves his hometown, comes full circle, lands in a place like Carlisle, and soon after he sees people dressed in black and wearing big beards in, you know, in buggies, <laughs> driven by horses. And so my dad thought it was a sick joke that God was playing <laughs> on him. Like, what is this? The United States, I, th I thought it was a place where there were tall buildings and, f you know, flashy lights everywhere. Uh -huh. But in fact, it was this small little town in the middle of Amish country. Mm -hmm. And so I think in many ways, the reception that we had was quite warm because nine families were responsible for helping my family assimilate, nine American families. And so each one of them had a responsibility to kind of help my parents and my family assimilate. So one, per, one family was, was responsible for teaching my parents how to drive. Another family was responsible for teaching my parents and my family how to speak English. Another was how to shop at the supermarket. Like everybody mm -hmm. had a different sense of responsibility. And so the reception uh, was quite warm. Yeah. yeah. So what was that program, that particular mm -hmm. program that you were part of sure. where there were nine families responsible? Sure. The organization that sponsored, sponsored us was St. Paul's Lutheran Church, mm -hmm. and they're located in Carlisle. And so during the 1980s, um, the United States was quite, if, if you were, people remember, the history of the United States was that it was at, at war. There was a Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so the Afghan Mujahideen, the freedom fighters, were fighting against the Soviets. And so Afghans had a special place in America's heart, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of organizations that were trying to help Afghan refugees because in many ways, Afghans were fighting the war against the Soviets that America's, that America couldn't fight for itself. You were the good guys. Technically at that time, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and so, um, so St. Paul's Lutheran Church essentially put out an application and my dad uh, went to the consular in Islamabad Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, consular office, and he essentially put an application like, hey, listen, my family's been here. My dad also used to work for USAID in Afghanistan. So USAID is the United States Agency for International Development. That's part of uh, the State Department that essentially goes out and builds wells, clinics, roads, develops developing countries. Because he had English, right? Isn't that yeah. part of the story? Yeah. So to, just to backtrack is my father fell in love with the idea of America when he was a teenager in Kandahar from a Peace Corps volunteer that he had by the name of Eric. So my dad learned some English, but also more importantly, he fell in love, he fell in love with the idea of America and what, idea, what America represented in his hometown of Kandahar in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Once he left Kandahar, he moved to Kabul and then he got a job at USAID. And he, my dad was uh, the key punch operator on uh, the first demographic study of the country. That's still being and that's still being used today in the military at the State Department because it's so hard to do a census in the country. Mm -hmm. So my dad presented his case at the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, dropped some names of Americans they did work with, and the consular officer at the time, the diplomat, was like, "Let me get, let me, let me check out this case. Let me check out Mr. Ahadi's uh, story." And so he did. My dad's story checked out. And so we got approved to essentially come over through this sponsoring organization called St. Paul's Lutheran Church. Mm. And so the backstory of that is really interesting because it kind of shaped the trajectory of my family's life in the sense that my father and my parents didn't choose to go to Canada or Germany or Australia when we were in refugee camps in, in Pakistan. They chose the United States because of my dad's exposure in Afghanistan through the Peace Corps and USAID when he was younger. Mm -hmm. the, the connection, it started early, and it's kind of amazing, right? Because that kind of built all the blocks to get you and your family where you are now. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, we are, Ronit, a culmination of all the decisions we've ever made in our lives. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what brings you and I to this point right <laughs> now. That's yeah. what brings your audience members to where they are right now listening to this episode. It's this thing, right? And so experiences build off other experiences and decisions build off other decisions. And so there's always this, you know, when you look back in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. While you're doing it, there's so much fog. <laughs> and so that's why it's important in many ways to like make decisions based on your intuition because there's something yes. inside of you 
telling you that this thing is right. It doesn't necessarily make mathematical sense. Uh, it's hard to make logical sense of something sometimes, but ultimately it's the right thing to do. And I think that's what my parents did. And it brought us to Carlisle and uh, gave us gave my brothers and I an upbringing that we couldn't have ever had in a place like Afghanistan. So when you were growing up, what was the the feeling in the house about Afghanistan? You know, what did your parents feel about it? How, what was their experience like being separated from Afghanistan? Oh, gosh, what a wonderful question. Um, so as a young boy, what's interesting is uh, – their stories of Afghanistan became my stories of Afghanistan. And I share this with you because I think it's important to note that in young people and young children, memory doesn't start until about three or four years old. Mm-hmm. And so for everybody that's listening, what's interesting is if you think about it, you can go back and piece out your first memories in your life. And if you can think about it, you're like, oh, this makes sense logically, chronologically, this would be my first memory because it happened in this house where my parents lived from this time to this time. And so you can piece, you can piece together your history based on the early memories that you have. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about the stories that my parents have of Afghanistan is that their stories of Afghanistan happened before I was alive. And yeah. so their stories of our identity became my stories of our identity. And that was really a watershed moment. And I'm only realizing this now because I'm in the process of reflecting on my early life now. Mm -hmm. And it was really difficult to be so separated from a place that they knew that essentially forged and formulated who they were as people and brought to a place that was vastly different than anything they'd have ever experienced before. And so as the saying goes, my parents were a fish out of water. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that human beings have this incredible ability to adapt. And uh, my parents did. And they did because they didn't live in the diaspora. So immigrant groups that come to the United States, they're two different types. Those that come to a community that's already established of people like themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. And those that come that land in a place where there's no community that represents anything like themselves. Mm-hmm. And my parents fulfilled the latter. Not by choice, but as a matter of circumstances. It was our ticket out. Mm-hmm. And so I say this with you because my our experience as a family, we as a result assimilated a lot faster to what it meant to be an American. It's also, I mean, you had so much support there. Right? Oh, yeah. So we have to talk about the type of support it was. Okay. What I, what I mean to say is it wasn't that, uh, you know, diaspora communities, immigrant groups, that immigrants that come here and land in their own communities have support from family and friends, but it's support from people who understand a world that they no longer live in, hmm. whereby my parents and my family got support from people who lived in a world that we now live in and understood and were raised by it. So it put us on a different trajectory. And I say this in comparison to my cousins who were raised in the diaspora, the Afghan diaspora communities of Queens, New York, (laughs) or Temecula outside of Los Angeles. And they are still very much entrenched in what it means to be an Afghan because they were, I mean, everything about their existence was very much Afghan, but in a new country. whereby my family's existence was very much uh, transitioning from being Afghan to being an American. Right. And, and that was a question I had as well. Did you growing up feel more like you were from Afghanistan or more that you were American? Yeah. So I think that's a really wonderful question. And there's something interesting about being that that's interesting about being an American or being an immigrant in America. America has this incredibly strong pull for young people to become American as soon as possible. <laughs> immigrant immigrant homes that you go to, right? Let's say they're people from Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Senegal, Mexico, you name it. If their parents aren't stringent about their kids speaking their mother tongue, they will lose it just like that. And this is an interesting thing. This phenomenon that exists in the United States where the pull is so strong for people to become America, Americanized as soon as possible 
doesn't exist in other Western countries. My cousins that live in Germany, they're still very Afghan. <laughs> My cousins that live in Denmark, they're still very Afghan. It's because the histories of those countries don't necessarily want them to assimilate. Right. The foundings right. of this country, as, an, as, as the United States is founded, it was, his, it was a place for people to come to because they were escaping something they didn't want to be a part of anymore. Right. What are you going to invent for yourself here? Precisely. Who are you going to be here? And it's reflected in literature, of course, and this American ideal, right? So it's basically asking you to assimilate, and it's implied that you really need to, right? You Would really you agree need with that? to, totally. And what's interesting about all of that is like, you know, we have to ask what it means to be an American. And it totally depends on who you ask because mm -hmm. there's different definitions of what it means to be an American. And I share this with you because this framework of understanding this pull that America has based on the story of America is important in my for, uh, formation of, of, of being a person who I am now. What do I mean? Is a young person, since I wanted to, to be so much an American, I in many ways felt deeply uh, embarrassed of the place that I had come from mm -hmm. and everything that I had represented. And I'm being really vulnerable here by sharing this with you because it's the truth. And it's something that I went through as a young person. And I mean to say, like, as a young person where you're trying to find your own identity and your peer group becomes more important than your family, we all sort of go through that here. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was deeply embarrassed of the things that represented my identity as an Afghan American. The Such smells, as, yeah. the mm -hmm. smells of the food that we ate, or the language in which we spoke at home, or the religion in which we observed or the clothes in which my parents thought I should wear. All these things that were transferred from my parents to me, I in many ways was trying to run away from. Did they see that? Totally. The conflict that my parents had growing up was, was fundamentally about this. Them pulling and me pushing. Them pulling and me pushing. And so I share this with you because thinking about my past as a young person made me feel very ugly. Hmm. And I'm in this phase of my life where I'm exploring this idea that we're never more beautiful than when we're most ugly. Hmm. And so I think about that time in my life and I think about how ugly I felt as an outsider in my peer group because I was vastly different. All my friends' names were John, Kyle, Dave, Adam, where my name was Bakhtash. Mm -hmm. And so... As a matter of a namesake and name changing, I even changed my name to become cool and or acceptable and or, you know, easy to be pronounced. So I went, I was known as Bach. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I share this with you because it was the point of conflict between me and my parents. And it was the point in which I was really trying to pull away from the thing that I now in my life, at this point in my life, am embracing. Do you think that your parents... This was a very new experience for them as well. And I can Im imagine it might have been painful for them as well, because there must be this tension between being grateful to the place that, that has given you a home and also, I don't know, maybe some sorrow for what you have had to leave behind. 100%. And so what's interesting about, gosh, this, it's, 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 this, it's, this, it's this duality of the gift of coming to America. And what I mean to say is America is a wonderfully beautiful place if you take advantage of the things that this country has to offer, if you're not resistant to it, if you embrace a free market sense of capitalism, if you, if, if you embrace the American, I would argue, the fundamental belief that people here believe in the power of choice. Mm -hmm. These are all fundamentally, I would argue, American things. My parents come from a world where that's not the case. And so being in an environment, an ecosystem where everybody around them believed in these things, they too slowly but surely ended up accepting this to be their notion of reality. But my parents too, they, they're in this duality of like, this doesn't feel right, but this is where we are, so this is what we have to do. Gosh, you know, the question I always ask people when I'm trying to like, have people think about what it means to go to someplace else and restart their lives. I ask people, you know, because we are fundamental human beings. So what that means is we're programmed. 
the things that we believe, the things that we share, the things that we speak, these are programmed into us as a young age. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have the choice of where we were born, who our parents were, the religion we were born into, the name we were even given. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not, we're not able to choose any of these things. <laughs> Yet we make judgment calls of other people based right. on these things. That's really uh, an important point. Right. These things that they can't change at all that they didn't choose for themselves. Right. Like the, we can change almost anything else in this day and age through science. We can change the color of our hair. We can even change the shape of our face. But we can't change these things in which were given to us when we first came to this planet. And so... Uh, my parents, right, like they came here and they can't shed these things that make them who they are to include an accent, to include a name, to include a worldview, to include a value system. And so I often ask people, is there some place that you would go to or if you had to go somewhere and there are values that you uphold, do you think you could ever give up those values? Freedom of choice, mm-hmm. freedom of speech, mm-hmm. love for family, right? Hard, an ethic, a belief in like a hard work ethic. These are things that fundamentally make up who some people are. Imagine trying to give up these things that you believe in when you go to, let's say, Tokyo or Buenos Aires or London or even Mars, which is where we're trying to go to now. (laughs) The point that I'm trying to make is human beings are programmed. And so after a certain age, it becomes even more and more difficult to change the way in which we are. Mm -hmm. And so my mother came here at the age of 23. My father came here at the age of 33. And it became very difficult for them. My mother, since she was much younger, she was able to kind of change Mm -hmm. and assimilate a lot faster. For my father, it was a lot more difficult because he was older. Mm -hmm. And so they were blessed, and they would tell you and they would admit to you that they were blessed for having the opportunity to raise their kids in a country that gives them everything that they could never have. Yet the sacrifice they made was they had to give up everything they knew. Mm -hmm. Did they travel back to Afghanistan? So... It's important also to note that, so my family came here, in the, my, my, my family came to the United States in 1986. The war started in 1979. And the war has been going on until this day. So we're on 41 years of war, Ronit. Hmm. So my parents didn't go back to Afghanistan until the fall of the Taliban, which, had, which is in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. My, mother, my mother went back for the first time in 2000 and five and then my father went back for the first time in 2010 Mm -hmm. it's also important to note that half of my family still lives there Mm -hmm. grandparents aunts uncles cousins so the way in which my parents would keep in touch with their families is that in afghanistan there was complete chaos and there was civil war after the soviets had left no phone lines no tvs none of that so people would have to leave afghanistan cross the border into pakistan get onto a landline and then make a collect call. If anybody remembers, any of your mm-hmm. audience members remembers mm-hmm. that, make a collect call to my parents. So I remember as a young person, phone calls coming in in the middle of the night and my mom and aunt, my mom and my father answering. And I can, I just remember my mother crying, crying because she'd heard the voice of her mother or her brother mm-hmm. for the first time in years. Mm-hmm hearing about what's going on, the turmoil that's happening within the country, the medicines that they may need. Mm -hmm. But the voice of my mother's family just broke her. It almost, I would probably, the way in which she cried made me feel like it would be better if she hadn't heard from them at all. Even though they were okay, they were in a place that that just consumed them because they were in a civil war. They couldn't control the outcome of it at all. And so there's this thing that happens too where my parents, I feel this, we suffer from what's known as survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. How did we get out? Why didn't they get out? What led us to be here? What led them to stay? What were the forces that were being that were at play that made all this come to be? Mm-hmm. These are things that would go on in our minds because we thought to myself, man, I'm about to go to fifth grade and go to a soccer game (laughs) where my other cousins are like trying to dodge rockets. Mm -hmm. And so, and so quite literally, Ronit, my parents were in this, this, I started the conversation by saying Carlisle was a very livable city, little livable town in America, whereby Cobalt in the 1990s was literally at civil war where rockets were being fired left and right. Mm -hmm. So these, 
two different extremes in my parents in our in our family's lives that were at play with each other in our minds and then also in television hearing news about what's going on there it kind of in many ways just it broke my parents especially broke my mother do you feel there was sadness it, like was there you know tangible sadness in the house mm. or did they try to live in the present with you boys that's a wonderful question I'm coming to the realization that um, my parents weren't able to discuss these elements of their lives with us because they personally didn't have the language in which to express themselves of these feelings that they had. They quite literally didn't have the language mm -hmm. to be like, I don't know why I'm feeling this way, but this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. They would say things to the effect of, oh, you're a poor family but they wouldn't talk about what it meant and what the significance was to them and for them. Mm -hmm. It was more about an external thing that was happening and we should feel sympathy for that. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the language or the framing to be able to express what that meant for them and what that signified for us. What did you, what, when you look back on your childhood, what did you make of it? What was your takeaway at the time? Not what you know now. What did you decide beyond your rejection of your past and your fear of being other? What was your sense about your parents? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I think at the time, my sense of my parents was that there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about being a young person is cognitively you have no perspective of the future you have very little you have very little understanding beyond the present mm -hmm. as young people from birth to about 25 years old cognitively our prefrontal cortexes don't develop <laughs> so we don't under we don't understand the concept of future we don't actually don't understand the concept of beyond where we are in many ways mm -hmm. and so as a young person i can just remember thinking to myself like why does it matter it's not here it's not tangible. And gosh, it's so interesting. Like now as a more mature, I think, thoughtful person, I think my my brain has fully developed in the sense that like I can imagine what it's like such that I can even empathize and it bring and it this thing that I think about can bring me quite quite a lot amount of sadness, even though it's not even here. Young children, they don't get sad about things that they can think about. They get sad about the things that impact them right then and there. And so I just remember thinking, this doesn't matter. We're okay. There's nothing you can do, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Your brothers, did they also go through that feeling of, you know, from what you understand, embarrassment about their roots? Mm. So my middle brother, Ilya, he was too young to remember any part of Pakistan or Afghanistan. I remember Pakistan because I was about three, four years old. So I remember my first memories were in that country. I think my brother Ilya's first memories were here. I think, to be completely honest, I don't know. I've never had an honest conversation mm -hmm. about it with him. Mm -hmm. He and I haven't uh, had that conversation. Mm -hmm. My youngest brother, Mashid, was born here um, three years after we had arrived. And so... What's interesting about my brother is that he, in many ways, represented a new life for my parents. Hmm. And I share this with you because I think it's an interesting phenomenon. I'm actually processing this in my, in my life right now. I'm writing about this idea of the role of pride in loving somebody and the role of how other people make you feel in loving them. So you, as a mother... This may resonate with you. You may be able to unpack this together with uh, in this conversation. But this idea of we are all living creatures and we all make people feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. That's why we can say, I like this person or I don't like that person. This person makes me feel a certain way. This person makes me feel a different way. We have to be honest and say, what is that? Ha what is what is happening now with parents and the way they feel about their children? It's... You've heard this over and over again, but parents will tell 
other parents that they love their children unconditionally. But that doesn't get to the root of which child do you love more or which <laughs> child do you favor more or which child makes you feel better as a parent. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I share this with you because I think about like I'm having courageous conversations with my parents now about the types of ways in which we made them feel growing up. Mm-hmm. I'm in a place in my life right now where my parents are my friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, I share this tidbit because my brother, my youngest brother, Mashid, I think in many ways resembled a different life for my family, a different life for my family. And it, he represents a different feeling for my parents. So my brother Ely and I represent an old world. <laughs> Almost a sense of burden they carry with them. <laughs> and there isn't, again, it's, it's part of who they are, so we are a reflection of the place that they came from. <laughs> but my youngest brother, the way he even looks, the way he acts, everything about him is American. <laughs> right. Everything about him, Ronit, is American. <laughs> His skin color, he's, he's very white. He's very light-skinned. Lighter eyes, lighter hair, bigger build, muscular build. My brother and I, we were getting our, our nutrition during our first couple years of our lives in refugee camps. Mm-hmm. My brother, he was getting his nutrition when my parents were like now working, making some money, having to be able to, being able to afford certain things. Mm-hmm. Real milk. right from the dairy farms of Pennsylvania. And so I share this with you because uh, my brothers and I, we have a different sense of who we are based on the experiences that we have in relation to our parents. Right. And are you friends with your brothers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And I share this with you because, you know, I'm in a process where I'm having these conversations with my parents, but I don't think I'm, I'm in a process right now of talking to my brothers and just slowly, slowly dropping these questions of like, what was it like for you? Yeah. Because I don't think they've processed it. Because I'm now, at this age, just now processing it. I understand that. I think it takes a while to get to the place where you are, maybe it's the wrong word, but safe or secure enough to look back. And and this might be why, you know, how long were the years you think when you look back that you were, you know, quote, rejecting your heritage and where you came from. How many years did you spend, you know, shunning that or wishing you were more American? Yeah. I divide my life by a single fundamental experience. I divide it in two. Mm-hmm. Pre-9-11, pre mm-hmm. post-9-11. Pre-9-11, I wanted to stay away from everything that essentially represented a place in which my family had come from. Because I thought to myself, that's no longer me. Mm. That is not me. I know nothing about that place. And so when 9-11 happened, it happened nine days after I arrived at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania. And this was during my freshman year. So I just left my parents' home. And I was on my own for the first time in my life. And when 9-11 happened, I went to a very homogeneous school. So there wasn't a lot of diversity. The demographic was very much middle to upper middle class, white working class, white upper middle class. And I share this with you because it's important because I was not that. Mm-hmm. And 9-11 reminded me that it wasn't, that I was not that. If you recall, 9-11 was a deeply emotional time for our country. Yeah. Deeply emotional where the President of the United States was using words and language like good and evil. Think about that. Mm -hmm. And so in-group, out-group, us versus them, you're either with us or you're against us. These were ultimatums that we as a country were giving to people and nations. Mm -hmm. So it was a deeply emotional time. And during this time, people knew that I was from Afghanistan. And so what ended up happening was people expected me to have the answers to the questions that they wanted to know. <laughs> so when I was pushing this sense of identity away for the longest time, 9-11, the, the events of 9-11, and the emotional reaction to 9-11 led people to have questions that they expected the answers from of me. So it's almost like I had to fulfill this void that existed in my community. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it necessarily. 
It was given to me. Does that make sense? Well, yes. I mean, but that's also the, that is the experience. This is a heightened time that you're talking about and a crucially a painful heightened time. But for any minority or ethnic group that is not the general population, the tokenizing or the, the need to how people make you represent and answer the questions that they have about your whole group is, you know, it's absurd. I mean, from the outside, mm -hmm. you know, bird's eye view of this, it's absurd when you look at it because I'm a Jewish woman, but I'm my own Jewish woman. I'm an Israeli Jewish woman, but I'm not like any other of them. I might have some things in common. You, why should you have to answer or know all these things? But, but at the same time, at least did you have hostility were there was there hostility toward you at university? No, I think that's a very nuanced uh, understanding of, of 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 a person's identity. But what's interesting about it is, I had to be able to defend myself mm -hmm. quite literally in all facets. What do I mean? Post nine eleven, uh, in the local newspaper at the school that I was attending, an op ed came out, and the op ed was entitled "We Should Just Bomb the Hell Out of Them." And in this piece that went to everybody in the school was the solution for this sense of this attack on us was, let's just go to Afghanistan and just bomb everybody there. <laughs> and what's interesting about that is like this thing that I've been pushing from, pushing myself, pulling myself away from all of a sudden, this moment when I read that as the only Afghan kid on campus, as the only Muslim kid on campus, really hurt. And it really hit a chord with me where I opened up my computer and just wrote a response and submitted it. And people had read it. So people were always at, people were asking, what do you think about this article? What do you think about this op-ed? After I'd submitted mine. And point for point, I negated everything that he had said. So there was this sense of hostility. And post 9-11 made me really, made me really curious to answer the question, why do people do what they do? Again, people were, it's almost this thing where I was fulfilling this void that people were either going to fill with their own story or I was going to help shape that narrative. It's a big responsibility if it's, you take it, right? Precisely. And, and, and people were asking me questions. Fox News, local newspapers, local interviewers, local journalists were reaching out to us being like, what is this like? We don't know where else to go. You're the only Afghan family we know in central Pennsylvania. <laughs> Help us understand. And so being given the responsibility uh, was not a choice. Because if you don't tell your story, somebody else will tell it for you. And that's deeply powerful. And you don't want people telling a story of a people that you represent in a way that's not representative. Yep. And so... Let me just add one tidbit of, of, of hostility in terms of a story of hostility. My parents were in Carlisle, Pennsylvania after 9-11, a town that embraced us. We won medals for running, playing soccer. We were contributing members of our society in that town. 9-11 happened and my parents for weeks had cars parked outside of their home and people would just watch my parents. Hmm. My parents were scared. They didn't know what to do. People were watching like, who are these Afghan people? Are they harboring terrorists? Do they have connection with bin Laden? Could they be Taliban? And so it was a responsibility and it was a sense of, uh, of, of, it was a sense of having to defend ourselves that we just didn't ever expect. And so, um, again, people don't know what they don't know. Of course we're upset about this. Of course we wish people would have a op more open mind. Of course people wouldn't tag us along with everybody else that's associated with this sort of place. Once you're Afghanistan, you assume somebody's a terrorist. You hear they're Afghan, you assume that they're a Taliban. I wish people weren't like that. Hmm. But that's not, how, that's, not, that's not how brains work. That's not how humans work, right? Yeah. And you know this because this is the work that you do. You're a writer, you're a creator, you express ideas, you exp express perspectives that may, uh, that may shape somebody's thinking about the world. And so that only happens through one form, actual engagement. If we don't engage other people that have a sp specific worldview, they will continue to have that worldview that may not be of service to them or the people that they're thinking about. Yeah. 
And so as a young person, you know, I think to myself, I'm like, wow, thank God I had the courage to step up. Mm-hmm. It would have been very easy to hide. I mean, it must have been very frightening. Yeah, but it was all, it was frightening. It was emotional. It was exciting. All these different things. Those that knew me were like, you have to say something. Mm-hmm. Those that didn't know me, sure. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Or I perceive this. And so in many ways, like my, my upbringing in a small town where all my friends were very much uh, Americanized and they were very much the quintessential example of what it means to be an American helped. It helps me now. So it's important for your audience members to know is right now, I, I essentially, the, all the work that I do is, a lot of the work that I do is related to sharing perspectives that bridge the East and the West together. So I teach mostly for the State Department right now, and I teach American diplomats. Um, who, who are, I train them essentially before they go off and they serve in Afghanistan. What do you train them in? Culture, language, history, politics of Afghanistan. I run a course that they're obligated to take before they go over there. Mm-hmm. And so this role in many ways, I, people ask me what I do and I tell them I get paid to talk about the things I like to think about. <laughs> well, wow, that's a jackpot, right? And, and, it, and it's all these things, Ronit. Like when I teach, I tell in story, I teach in story, but I tell people the stories of my family. I tell them the stories about my time as a combat interpreter in Afghanistan for three years. And so I'm a cop. So in many ways, like the stuff that I talk about are things that have been real to me and things that I've experienced. And I'm able to bridge these two worlds quite literally together such that it leads to greater understanding. And and I'm really blessed to be able to do so. Again, it's this thing where it was almost it was almost a role that I had to fulfill because I knew that if I wasn't going to tell the story of a place that represented me, then somebody else would. You and know? and it, it's it's the work you've chosen and maybe also the work that chose you. Do you ever wish or have you wished at any point that you didn't you didn't feel called? that you didn't have to do the work of talking about your past and where you're from all the time? That's a great question. You know, often immigrant groups that come to America, those that are creative types, talk about their identity and they express their identity either in painting or writing or storytelling or filmmaking. And sometimes people are like, why do you talk about that so much? (laughs) I get that question all the time. And the, the answer to that question is because people always ask, where are you from? What's your name mean? Mm-hmm. Why do you, what language do you speak? So the questions that are asked of us lead us to explore these questions of who we actually are. And so it comes out when we express ourselves. And so to answer your question, I can't even imagine what else it would be like. Because <laughs> as this person living in this society that's, you know, that, that doesn't know what to do with people like my family, what else would there, what other options are there? Like if I went down the medicine path, people would still ask this question, you're my doctor, but where are you from? Yeah. And I'm trying to provide a service, but ultimately people are like, well, yeah, he's this, oh, he's amazing. He's this amazing Afghan doctor. He's not just a doctor. He's an Afghan. <laughs> yeah. There's no amazing, escape. There's this amazing Jewish writer. Why does she have to be Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, right. And it's this thing that people <clears throat> yeah. always ask this of us. So we often explore this sense, this part of our identity. I, I almost I almost don't know how to answer that question, Roni, because it's just this thing mm-hmm. where it's like the questions that are asked of us, we have to be able to f- answer those questions because otherwise we're not engaging in any co- meaningful conversation. Right. Right? Like That's pe- not where we reside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like how else do you make a connection with people if you can't answer the questions they're asking of you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, you know, I, I find the trajectory of your life so interesting that your father was afforded English, you know, by someone from the Peace Corps. And then that helped you get out of the refugee camps in Pakistan, correct? And get to Pennsylvania. And then you rejected and and didn't like to know where you came from. And then 9-11 happened and you were forced to, and then embraced representing your past. And then you find yourself going back. Yeah. So, so, so really quickly, what happened after 9-11 is I graduated from college in 2005. And if your audience members remember, 
In 2005, after the United States went into Afghanistan, after bin Laden and the Taliban, because the Taliban essentially, just so people understand, George Bush and Dick Cheney essentially called the Taliban and said, listen, we know that bin Laden and al-Qaeda are responsible for the attacks 9-11. We essentially want them. We know where they are. They're in Afghanistan. Give them up and we'll leave you alone. And the Taliban essentially said, Listen, if you want, if you want them, they're guests in our home. You have to go through us. And so the United States went into Afghanistan, bombed Afghanistan. Al Qaeda makes its way across the border. Bin Laden gets away and Taliban essentially melt away in about six weeks. The United States declares victory and sets its sights on Iraq. And if you remember that debacle of weapons of mass destruction, Mm -hmm. And so I graduated from college in 2005 when the United States was in an active war with Iraq. So I thought to myself, man, I want to serve my country, but how do I want to do it? Hmm. So I joined the Peace Corps and I got to serve in Mozambique. And what's beautiful about the Peace Corps is at the time you didn't get to choose the country of your service. So I just wanted to serve somewhere in Africa. I gave them the region. And so I got to, uh, I got assigned Mozambique, knew nothing about the place, had to look it up on a map. Got assigned to ser- uh, serve in a small little town, a small little village called Moetis, where I taught English for two years. Got malaria mm. twice, no electricity, no water, and uh, I came back. I came back from that experience, and people always ask, like, "What was that like?" And I tell people it was the best education of my life. Mm. And they look at me cross-eyed, and I think I say to myself, "Well, think about it." Every morning now, when I wake up and I go wash my face, I think to myself, "I didn't have to fetch this water this morning. I'm a grateful person." Right. And so I decided to join the Peace Corps because I remember the stories of my father being taught English by Eric in Kandahar from the Peace Corps. And that essentially was like the aha moment where I was like, oh, Peace Corps does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It may take time, but they do make a difference. And so that was my way of giving back. That was my way of giving back to a country, the United States, a country that gave my family pretty much everything that we have. Mm. And so after that after that um, that service, came back to Washington, D.C., had some jobs, uh, had a job in consulting. And uh, I tell people I did management consulting for two years and I realized what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. This, I mean, people that know management consulting, it's like, what are you actually doing? Anyway, <laughs> So I did that, and the timing was such that um, I was fed up with the work that I was doing, and the surge by President Obama was announced in January, no, sorry, of December of 2009. One month later, I was on a plane to Afghanistan, and I was there for three years, mostly as an interpreter, a combat interpreter for the Marines. Mm-hmm. And so I went back and saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of what war does to people. Mm-hmm. And what it makes people become for the good and for the bad of who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. And um, when people ask me what that experience was like, uh, I often tell them I was quite literally at war with two facets of my identity in an active war zone. So my adopted country in a war with facets of my home country. And at the time, half my family, my half, half my family still lives there. Did you see them? Yeah, yeah. My father even came back, and he was an interpreter too for three years. Wow! So my father and I were assigned to the same unit for six months in Kandahar. Wow. Um, I'm thinking, how did your mom feel mm-hmm. saying goodbye to two of the dearest people in her life um, mm-hmm. while you went to a, a war zone? It's interesting. I think. Um, I think my mother rationalized it by saying to herself, at least they're together. At least they're out there. At least they're out there doing something meaningful. At least, at least yeah, my, my mother, gosh, my mother, God bless her. She doesn't think in these terms of things negatively happening. My mother's a woman of faith, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, there's something positive to be said about that. Mm-hmm. 
also too, it's helpful to know that my, my, my dad and I didn't actually tell my mom what we were doing. <laughs> that, that's helpful. That's a helpful detail. <laughs> what did you say? So yeah, I t- we told mom and I t- gosh, I told my mom, I was just like an interpreter on a base where like people had like requests, they'd come and they'd see me and then I'd go and ask for like the army to go give them like this supply or that supply. Dad or, like, too. Dad too. <laughs> so there was no need for our family to know. Between mm-hmm. you and I, there was no need for our family to know because ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we as human beings, by not telling the ones that we love the realities that we face, is our way of showing that we are protecting them and that we love them. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't tell them. And we didn't tell them until we came back. My dad and I came back within a month of each other after three years of being in Afghanistan. Um, For six months, my father and I were attached to the same unit in Kandahar. And um, that experience was actually uh, quite fascinating. The reason I share this with you is because I learned something about, I learned a lesson in life about context. So I had always known my father to be my father in the context of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And my father, uh, he got a state job and went to a job that he didn't necessarily like for 22 years until he got retirement for us and the benefits that he had, you know, acquired from his job for his family. And that's interesting because part of the Afghan Afghan identity here in the United States, we talk about being happy, and we only we we want our friends and our family to be happy. That's not that's not what that's not what's said about the Afghan identity. If we're going to be completely honest, parents don't want their kids to be happy. <laughs> okay. Afghan parents want their kids to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You're a doctor. Work. You have a good job. Don't be an artist. That's not good. Be a doctor. Mm-hmm. It's comfortable. Be an engineer, it's comfortable. They won't say it in those terms. They'll say it as though it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But in the context of Western fa- American families, if you ask Mr. and Mrs. Smith, how's your son? Oh, he's good, he's happy. He could be, could be doing anything. And so my parents don't, didn't fall into that mode. And some other immigrant groups, some other cultures have this too. They don't want happiness for their kids. They want comfort for their kids. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Like some kids, for example, some people jump out of planes and they come back and they tell their parents they're very happy jumping out of planes. If you tell my parents that, they'll think you're cra- they'll think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy. Why, why would you do that? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. There's a difference. Yeah. And so my father saw it as his utmost <laughs> responsibility to go to this job that he didn't like, where he was dealing with discrimination every single day from his boss, but he did it because of his family. Part of the Afghan identity is sacrifice. It is part of who we are. And so I saw my father as this stern individual who didn't talk too much, who didn't really know how to play. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a playful person growing up. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he wasn't happy at work. He didn't know how to process or have the language to process his life. Mm-hmm. He didn't have somebody to talk to. Going to a the therapist in our culture is not a thing. And would it not be something he'd talk about with your mom because no. of the... Like, was it more of a patriarchal kind yeah. of family? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So, mm-hmm. again, the quintessential patriarchal understanding of what a father-husband is. Strong, strong, tough. quiet, mm-hmm. Strong, quiet type person. Mm-hmm. And so, for the longest time, I just thought to myself, man, dad doesn't understand me. My parents don't understand me. They just don't get it. Hence the reason why there was so much of me trying to push myself away yeah. from my parents. Because I really thought it was about me. They just didn't get me. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about going to Afghanistan and working with my father in the same unit is I actually, you know, he would fumble around in the United States. He would go to different places. He wouldn't understand what people were saying. People would make fun of him because of his accent. He would fumble around in some sense. Mm-hmm. When I went back to Afghanistan, I saw my father command a room like I'd never seen before. I saw him in a room with two colonels, one Afghan, one American, telling them where an insurgent group was going to be because of what he heard on the radio. 
And I'd never seen people of that status give my father that level of respect in the United States. It never happened. I'd never seen it. All the years I was with my father, I'd never seen it. And I went back and I saw my father in the context of his home, quite literally his home, where he was born and he was raised. All of a sudden, people came to him with with questions. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's going on. And at that moment, I realized it wasn't my father that didn't get me all these years. It was me not getting him. Hmm. And so it changed my whole perspective in terms of like how I understood my parents because my mother came to, my mother also came to Afghanistan. She like would see her family. So we did our family reunions there. And so hearing my mother and my father's stories about who they were before I was born from family members that I'd never even known made me fall in love with my parents. And so it was this thing whereby it was like a watershed moment where like I learned that context is everything. If I can fold it back to what it means to be an American in the context of the United States, we have family members, mothers, fathers, and they do this thing, right? They may be a doctor or a lawyer, and they do this thing for hours on end a day. And their kids know nothing about that world. And they, know, they don't know their mother or their father in that world. And at home, they could be somebody that they may not respect or they may not understand. But you put, if you put your kid in that space and your child sees you in that space and they see you flourish in that space, your child will have a different sense of admiration of who you actually are mm-hmm. and have a more complete picture of who you actually are. And you know what? That may even lead to a better relationship with them. And that's what happened with me. The context of, the, of my parents being in their home taught me that there's so much more to them that I simply did not understand. Yeah, and I imagine they didn't have the time, even if they had the vocabulary when you were growing up, they probably couldn't hold the space for that. And I imagine too that it must have been painful for your father, your mother too, but maybe your father even more to be treated that way and looked upon that way in Carlisle. 100%. And I think it was so difficult for him to kind of talk about it because it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a layer. People become hardened when they're put down. And what's interesting about that hardening is that when they eventually need to step out of it, they themselves can't get out because it's so hardened. Cause all that year, all those years of just weathering mm-hmm. and there will come a moment where somebody has to get up because eventually we all want to be authentic to who we actually are. But to come out is even more difficult because of all those years of putting yourself in that, in that, in that, in that sheath of like, I'm not coming to out. survive because at the same time, like the primary thing is to survive and raise your family. And of course there must be this feeling of gratefulness for being in the U S but that doesn't take away that other layer inside that is feels good or bad about the humanity that you're able to express, you know? Yeah. Um, so your, your parents, before we, we end, um, your parents are in good health Yeah, now, and you see them. Yeah, it's great. You know, I'm really blessed, Ronit. I, uh, my parents live two hours away, so I get to see them at least once a month. They come down here, I go up there. And uh, yeah, you know, what's interesting about who they are now, it's like we've all come full circle. My parents and I have a wonderful relationship. My parents, when people ask how they are, I say, you know what? They're moving. <laughs> if you're moving, you're not stagnant. If you're, mm-hmm. And if you're moving, you're still going. And that's really what's most important. So, you know, something that's inspirational is like, Something that I've learned in my life is that life will throw all types of roadblocks your way, all types of barriers, and all types of all types of troubles that we just did not anticipate. But what's beautiful about life is if you can continue going forward, other good things will come about. As long as you listen to your intuition, you'll be okay. And as long as you keep the ones that you love really close, you'll be okay. And uh, that's what my stories taught me about who I am and about what this world's all about is like, listen to my intuition, call it God, call it your inner voice, call it whatever you'd like. Listen to it, at least learn to listen to it and keep the ones that you love close because at the end, they're the ones that are going to come to your rescue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where can listeners find your work and find out more about you? Sure, sure. So if people are interested, they can go to my website. All my work's there. So my website is uh, com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com. I have uh, my podcast is up there, Stories of Transformation. 
Um, Which everyone should check out because you do a really beautiful job. Thank you. And um, I have some films that I've been working on that are up there too, as as, uh, as well as some writing and uh, a TEDx talk. So you can find me there. Mm -hmm. Baktash, thank you. I'm really so glad that we were able to do this in person and, and I got to hear your story. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.